Well, we are in Matthew chapter 4, all joking aside. And we've gone from the Lord's public baptism. And then last week we started this chapter and we saw the temptation of Jesus. And you'll see this week why we kind of split that up into two sections. Because now the Lord is going to publicly start his preaching and healing ministry as he's going to be going through different regions. And we're going to be looking at the gospel through some different angles. We're going to look at the historical and theological angles, you know, the, the education, the information. We're going to go through that. It's very important. But we're also going to be looking at the personal, the intimate relations that Jesus has, not only with the people at that time, but with us personally. And we're going to be shifting between that intimate, personal relationship and then that infinite message that he has. And I'm excited to do that with you. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to read verses 12 through 17 to get started. Lord, we thank you for who you are and your revelation of yourself. And we pray this morning that we would have a deeper, more intimate relationship with you. That, God, you would be closer to us and we would be closer to you. And that we would see it in the pages of Scripture and through Jesus' life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read verses 12 through 17 together. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you can already see the contrast from the previous verses when the Lord resisted temptation and out in the desert with the enemy. Now we're going to look at the historical and theological aspects. First, we have to realize that we have to look at all of the Gospels to see what's happening here. Remember that fancy word, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They go together, and in this case also John, to show us what's been happening. Because Matthew's audience, remember, is the nation of Israel. That Jesus is the fulfillment of millennia of prophecy. He's the Messiah of the Jews that will bring in the kingdom. We also know that Old Testament prophecy tells us that he's the Messiah of the whole world, of Jew and Gentile alike, and he's going to be emphasizing that. Because of that audience, Matthew is not interested as much in a chronological viewpoint of everything that's happening. He's going to emphasize the things that are fulfillment of the Old Testament, of Israel's history. How, how do we know this? Well, because in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, we know that before John the Baptist's arrest, that Jesus has already been to the wedding at Cana. He's already met the woman at the well in Samaria. He met Nicodemus, Nicodemus in Jerusalem, excuse me. I want to say Israel, but that was a little too vague. But Nicodemus at Jerusalem, and he's already returned back to Nazareth where he's been rejected. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it says when John was arrested, Jesus is going to be leaving Nazareth. And so we want to be able to put these things together, and we want to be able to look at the entirety of the gospels to see Jesus' life and to see what he wants to show us. Now, 
when he starts talking about names here, Nazareth, Galilee, Capernaum, Zebulon, Zebulon Naphtali, like that doesn't mean anything to us. That, that's like us explaining the streets of a city we've never been to. So I went ahead, I, I got the map for us showing us Jesus' early ministry. And I know if you're online and even here in the sanctuary, it's a little, little tight because it's so elongated. But here in Matthew's gospel, we start off in number five, all the way in the top. But Jesus left, left Nazareth, went down to Bethany, went down to Jericho in the Judean desert. He's been to Jerusalem like we talked about, and then all the way back. The Lord knows how to walk. He knows how to get places. Now you can see he's raised up in Nazareth, up in the north, next to the Sea of Galilee. That's that body of water up there. If you're online, you can barely see it. It's that gray blob in the middle. And when, I want you guys to see these references because they talk a lot about his movement and where he's at. But we are also going to see a lot about his ministry and what he's after and who he is just by looking at the fulfillment of prophecy and where he's speaking. What do I mean by that? In the northern area, Galilee, at that time, it is a very, very populous area. There's a lot of people up there. It's fertile. There's a lot of farming. And the majority of the people in Jesus' area that he's ministering, they are Gentiles. They are not Jews. Now, there's lots of Jewish people there and Jewish enclaves and cities like Nazareth. But ultimately, it's a big, big group. The other thing I want you to know is you can see how far away it is from Jerusalem. It's a very progressive area, a lot of nationalities there, a lot of different people groups. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not teaching in the religious areas. The influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is far away, at least the center of it. And all this, Jesus leaving Nazareth because he's rejected there first, he goes to Capernaum right there in the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to get started. We see already that Jesus is not about metrics and logistics or strategies, not about looking at the politics of the area and seeing what strategic place he needs to go to. He's showing us that he is a light in a dark place. Isn't that sound familiar? Wasn't that here in verse 16? Let's look at that prophecy there. Back in Isaiah, millennia before this time, almost millennia, it says in verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Hundreds of years before Jesus' ministry takes place, and we see the archaeological, historical, manuscript evidence that that's exactly what took place. How in the world would Isaiah know that this would be the region of the Gentiles at that time? Almost divinely inspired. That's sarcasm, y'all. It is divinely inspired. So in verse 16, it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. That's some familiar language. At least to a Christian, you may be like, I've heard this before somewhere. I've heard something like that. Well, in John chapter 3, verse 16, a very popular verse, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Spoiler alert, this is not the only verse in the chapter because it continues. A lot of people know this verse, but they don't know the rest of the chapter. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. That's what that phrase is. And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, this is Christian, non-Christian, every person. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are broken individuals. We love darkness rather than light. If my natural response is to do evil things. You know, for example, somebody cuts off my wife in traffic. I am not praying for them and hoping that they are successful in their day. I am immediately bent to vengeance. That's why we love those vengeance movies so much, y'all. Now, I'm just making light of showing us that no man seeks after God, no, not one. And it is a fallacy. It is very dangerous for us to go into the world and tell people, oh, you have a Jesus-sized hole in your heart, and you're hurting right now, and you need Jesus because you're so lost without him. We know, I know plenty of people that are living the time of their lives, completely enjoying and feeling liberated in their lifestyle without Christ because men love darkness rather than light. Now, don't let that hurt your feelings. Don't let that get you upset. Because what does the Scripture here say? It says here in Isaiah, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus goes to them. When Jesus is present, He exposes the darkness. I think of my teenager's room. You go into my teenager's room, it's not too bad until I go to the windows and I open the shades. Then there's laundry everywhere, there's trash, there's... I'm like, what in the world happened here? This is disgusting. And Jesus comes into our life. When you have Him in your presence, He reveals to us that, yes, we are broken, we are hurt, we need healing, we need to make a way. See, Jesus is not teaching religion or ritual. He's not proselytizing Judaism. He's not set up in Jerusalem. He's not trying to lay down the law on people. He is going to the hurt, to the lost, to the weak, the forgotten, the cast-offs, to the dark places, and he goes to them. What is Jesus' name? God with us. God comes to us. He goes to the hurting. We saw that earlier in John. He did not come to condemn the world, but that through him the world could be saved. He's the illuminating presence. And then he takes John's message to repent. It says here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just in this statement, he is already revealing more about himself. Now, Matthew points out that John the Baptist has been arrested. Herod has taken him prisoner. Apparently, Herod does not like the fact that he's been called out for a sinner because he killed his wife to take another one. And John pointed it out to him. And Jesus takes that message, and he is now taking off with it. He's going to continue it. But I don't want anyone to think that Jesus is fulfilling John the Baptist's message. He is taking the mantle, the message that has been taught for millennia, that God is going to come in the flesh and rescue his people, and he is going to now fulfill the message of John the Baptist.
when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But even in that first word, repent, we're being taught something. Remember earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about this word. It's not meaning feel guilty. It doesn't mean repent, feel bad. Repent means to change your action, go in a different direction. It's a response. But when Jesus tells us to repent, we realize that we really can't because we love darkness rather than light. We are slaves to sin. In fact, Jesus tells us that, tells us that in John 8, 34. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans talks about this, the, the letter to the Romans, over and over again about how we're slaves to sin. So how in the world are we going to be able to repent? Jesus is going to give us the ability to repent. First, He illuminates our life. He's the light in the dark place. He even shows us that we need to. And then second, He gives us the ability to through Himself. And remember, He comes to us where we're at. And so already, even in the first word, when He's speaking about repentance, He's speaking about Him. What's the next thing He says? He says, the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot of Bible commentaries. I, I read quite a few of them, not that many. I'm not that theological. But they do argue back and forth the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the original Greek and the Hebrew and blah, blah, blah. And then I got to Guzik's commentary last because he's like, speaks to people like me, you know, dumb Christians. And he says, all of that doesn't matter because it means the same thing. He literally says in his commentary, many theologians debate the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, they are synonymous. They mean the same thing. It's because uh, in Jewish tradition, remember this is a Jewish audience in Matthew, you do not write the name of God. Even today, if you see a Jewish uh, newspaper article or something, they, they write God, it's G-D. They just reverence that name so much they don't even write it. And so they would write the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is telling us this is not an earthly kingdom. This isn't about ruling and reigning or defeating Rome or making Israel great again. This isn't about making Israel the United States of America of the first century. There's only one United States of America. But Jesus has a bigger mission, an eternal mission. The scripture tells us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Jesus is after souls. He's about reconciling God and man, completing us, and then giving us an eternity. And now I want to go to the intimate. You know, we talked about the historical, the theological. Here's the, the intimate part. Jesus is the express image of God the Father. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you study Jesus. And so when Jesus is looking these people in the eye and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is the kingdom of heaven. He is what he is preaching. He is the way. He's illuminating them. He's revealing these things. And I want you to think about this to the audience he's speaking to. There's people there that are just checking him out. They don't know anything about him. There's people there that are hanging on every word. There are people that are trying to reject him and figuring out ways to stop him all in that audience, and not a single one of them could possibly imagine that the words they were hearing would be taught in every language, time, tribe, 
place, from North Korea to China. Word on the street is that there's more believers in China today than there is in the United States. Not by percentage, but by population, because there's so many people. In Iran, in South America, in the United States, these words are being taught. And the people that were hearing it for the first time, face to face with the Lord, had no idea. But Jesus did. He preaches the kingdom of heaven. It's for outside of time. But let's continue to keep it intimate, but in a different way. He is speaking to you. He has a relationship with you. He is reaching out through creation and has a voice into your life. He's a light in a dark place with you. Jesus' mission is then greater. We'll go from the intimate to the infinite. That he is rescuing people forever and ever and ever, from everlasting to everlasting. He is reaching out because he is truth and he is speaking into the heart and to the soul of each and every one of us. When we speak about the kingdom of heaven through Jesus, Jesus tells us this in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things shall be added to not the church, not to religion, not to the world, added to you. Put your name there. Fill it out. Fill your whole name there. You seek the kingdom of God. You seek Jesus. You go after him. He's coming to you. And you will have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Connection to God, the creator of all things. These things will be added to you. Personal. That's why I said, you know, it's important for us to understand the historical and the theological. It's important for us to know the facts. It's more important for us to, to know the king, to know the Lord. And that's when I finish. He says, for the kingdom, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Well, in his case, it's literal. If you're standing in front of him, you can reach out and you could touch his hand there in the first century. I love what the, they write in the epistles later. Uh, John writes it, that which our hands have handled, our eyes have seen. The kingdom of heaven was there physically at hand. But it's also, as you know it more clearly, means imminent, close, very close. You can reach out and touch it. Spiritually, you have access to God. It is at hand. It's imminent. It's right in front of you by faith alone. And we're going to talk about that the difference between the visible and the invisible in this chapter. But I think it's, it's more important for us to know as well as believers that Jesus is coming quickly. He will return and you will see him eventually. In Matthew 24, 42, he said, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And we'll see. Either Jesus will come to us or, God forbid, you'll close your eyes for the last time and you will go to him. For it is appointed to a man once to die and then the judgment. Or more morbidly speaking, 10 out of 10 people die. We all got a date with destiny. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the key, the key is that Jesus is not just preaching those things. He is those things. He is the light in a dark place. Well, let's switch it up a little bit. He's going to go verses 18 through 22 now. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, 
Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Well, you got Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're all called here. And if you're just reading the Gospel of Matthew, it seems like Jesus just shows up on the beach, says, hey guys, let's ride. They jump in and they're gone. But remember, we got to use all the viewpoints of Scripture. We have the synoptic Gospels because in John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5, we know that he's already met these guys. They've already done ministry together. Um, They were baptizing on the River Jordan. They had followed him and heard the message of John. So what he's calling them to is full-time ministry. He's saying, we're going to stop working and teaching once in a while. Now we're going to go full-time on the road preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's important for us to read the Gospels and to read them in their context. Now, I'm going to selfishly change the subject here for a minute. Because these guys, they're blue-collar workers. They're out there on their job, messing with fish and nets and boats and keeping things going. And I realize that not everybody understands anymore what a blue-collar worker and a white-collar worker is. It's not entirely uh, black and white or blue and white in this case. But a white-collar worker traditionally is someone that works in an office, wears a white T-shirt, doesn't get dirty. Uh, You know, accountants, uh, managers, business people. Traditionally in America... Uh, Auto mechanics, welders, roofers, uh, framers would wear blue coveralls, and therefore they would have blue collars. You had blue collar workers and white collar workers. And Jesus goes to the job site and goes and speaks to these blue collar guys and says, I'm calling you to the ministry. Now, let's be even more frank because, you know, I'm a blunt guy. When you think of church, do you think of blue collar workers? I'll tell you what you don't want to say. You think about the ladies having a bridge game or the older guy with a theological degree telling everybody how to live their life. You don't think about the blue-collar guy down the street who's getting his 12-pack and his scratchers on a Friday. Oh, oh, you guys are laughing because that's what you think about when you think that's not what Jesus sees. He sees ministry opportunities. He sees disciples. He sees people he wants to use. And we have separated those two worlds. I live in both those worlds. And I don't look down or look up to anyone that's a bivocational ministry or fully vocational. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is the message of Jesus Christ being taught. Are people being saved? Are they being healed? Are they being changed? That's what really matters. I mean, I threw this verse in selfishly because I'm just like on an honest streak right now. But the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. It's one of my favorite verses. I like to say it to my kids every once in a while, just to remind them who's boss. Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church. He's saying no bumps. So let's see, biblically though, the kind of people that God uses. I've taught you well enough. We don't want to take things out of context. You can't use a one-off, right? Well, when Saul was made king... He was looking for his father's donkeys. When David was called, he was tending his father's sheep. When the shepherds heard the message from the angel that the Messiah was born, they were out there with the flock. 
Amos, the prophet, he was farming in Tekoa. Matthew, we'll see, he was at the tax collector's table. Still don't think that was a good choice, Lord, but hey, you're the boss. No one wants a tax collector around. Where was Moses? He was working and tending his father-in-law's flock. And Gideon, we just saw Gideon in the book of Judges on Wednesday. He was at the threshing floor, hiding in the valley, remember? Paul, who would later be a tent maker, when he was called, he was a police officer. Well, not a police officer like you and I think. He was persecuting the church of God. He was a cop on the wrong side. That's who God calls. He's calling these workers, these strong, blue-collar, going out of their way, strapping their boots on every day, making things happen with their hands, people. And that's not what we think about when we think about church. We don't associate those things together. And that's not a biblical perspective. Remember, I want you to see, Jesus goes to them. We're talking about the King of Kings, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, through whom all things consist and exist. It's through Him that the worlds were made, Jesus. And He goes to their job site. They should be crawling to Him on all fours just for the privilege of touching His sandal straps. John the Baptist got that right. But He is a light in a dark place. He comes to us. He seeks out not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He changes us. And so now, He continues in verses 23 through 25. And Jesus went out went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people which were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and far beyond the Jordan. And now that you guys remember the map, you can know what a big region that is. It's sad that so many people are just worried about the great crowds, how many people there are, how many people are getting healed. Like that's what the focus is, when the focus should be on God, our relationship with God, our spiritual walk. What does God think? Oh, that's a good church. There's a lot of people there. That's a bad church. There's not. That's sad. And we'll see that these great crowds are not going to follow Jesus all the time. As long as he's feeding them and healing them, they show up. When that doesn't happen, they disappear when things get hard. But I want us to see something else. That Jesus is healing every single person that he can. And it's important for us to know because as a pastor, I pray for people to be healed all the time. And the majority of the time, nothing happens. Nothing. It's like, well, what's going on here? Shouldn't there be a magic formula? Number one, God the Father heals, Jesus heals, the Holy Spirit heals. We do not have a vote. We do not heal anyone. No pastor, no person, no human. We do no such thing. So that's number one. That's who heals. So number two is why. Why did Jesus heal everyone? And why doesn't he heal everyone all the time now? Well, number one, all healing, all healing is temporary. Every person that Jesus healed physically died, every one of them. Lazarus raised from the dead, he died again. All healing is temporary. It's a momentary comfort. But what it really comes down to, when I'm ministering to someone 
who's lost a loved one, who's dealing with cancer, who's dealing with something that's not being healed, and they see someone else being healed, and they're questioning, you know, why is God allowing this for them and not for me? What is the situation here? I don't understand. Remember I told you earlier that Jesus was dealing with the visual so that we would trust him with the invisible. I said earlier, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit you if everyone is healed on this planet, but then we're all separated from God for eternity? All healing is temporary. All pain is temporary. All ailments are temporary. Jesus came and showed us physically, visually through these healings so that when he spoke about the invisible, when he spoke about the soul and resurrecting people's souls and bringing them into the kingdom of heaven, that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, we have something to believe. He didn't say just have blind faith and believe me because I said so. That's what lunatics say. But Jesus said, watch this. Watch me, touch me, see me. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to come back from the dead so that you can believe me on the invisible things that you can't see. We must remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I'm reminded when I'm with believers that even though the answer for them being healed now may be no, they will be healed. We just don't like the timing. I don't like the timing either. I'm right there. But to be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord, and you'll be healed for eternity. It's temporary. It's temporary. I know it doesn't feel that way. I've been through the ringer. You know, in my life, I've had some real difficulties. I've had some real trials, you know, things that make you question everything. And I've had people, they come to me with the theological. And in those times of grief, they come and they want to lecture me in or they want to teach me or they want to do what I just did, preach those things to you. And they, they're well-meaning. They want to encourage me. And then I've had other people come to me in my life who aren't like that. They don't normally do this. They're not very comforting people who said nothing. And they just came up to me and they just gave me a hug. And they said nothing and they walked away. And that meant more to me than a thousand lectures. And again, well-meaning people. It's a reminder to us that that's what Jesus is like. So many people, they want to be philosophized or have theology or the history or the facts. Oh, yeah, everything's going to work together for the good. It's okay. Everything's good. Yeah, that's fine. I'm dealing with someone who's dying or died. And then we have to remember the scripture. Jesus is the light in a dark place, the God of all comfort. And just like a friend of mine may come to me and just be quiet and just give me a hug of comfort, the Lord is the same way. You can sit silently with the Lord, and the Bible speaks about the peace that surpasses all understanding. Then we understand the scripture that says, He leads me by green pastures and still waters. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit will intercede and interpret the groanings of our heart. Just sit with him and allow him to comfort you through whatever trial it is. You don't have to speak and he won't, doesn't have to speak to you. 
Jesus is the bridge between man and God. He is the bridge to the kingdom of heaven. If we seek him out, if we repent and turn to him, be yourself. You don't fake it. He knows all things. He will touch you in a way that no person can touch you. He will heal you in a way that no human being can counsel you, therapy you, change you. Just sit in the presence of God. And most importantly, I want you to know He will come to you. You don't have to change who you are or be something else or be more religious. Jesus is the Redeemer of all mankind. Just sit with Him. It's the only advice I got for you. It's the best advice I got. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for who you are in your Son. We pray that we would have a better understanding of Him, that our spiritual walk would grow, that we would be deeper individuals, enjoying every gift you've given us, comforting those that need comforting, healing those that need healing, Lord. We pray that you would allow us to be used to go into the world, whatever space that may be, and be salt and light a reflection of you. I pray for those that may be hurting this morning that are in here. They're trying to figure it out, Lord. They're trying to wrestle it out. They want to deal with the facts. I pray, Lord, that they would just sit in your presence and that you would touch them and comfort them as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, come on up. We'll pray with you, lay hands on you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.